Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This one's pretty straightforward. This is the official last episode of the year for The Realignment before we go into the holiday season break. With that in mind, I wanted to share a conversation I really enjoyed recording earlier in this month in San Francisco. I spoke with the former Chief Technology Officer of the United States, Mike Kratzios, under the Trump administration, and previous realignment guest, Jen Palka, who was the Deputy CTO of the United States during the Obama administration. This panel was focused on how technologists, or frankly anyone, interested in reform could get into government. So lots of really great questions for these two panelists. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. And of course, I will link notes to all of their work moving forward. I really want the realignment to be a space where folks who are interested in solving and addressing issues can really get involved. So this is a perfect place to start. Definitely hit me up and let me know if you have any further questions. Have a good holiday and a great start to the new year. See you in 2024. Huge thank you, of course, to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. So we'll just kind of jump into things here. Um, Jen, I want to start with you going through a chronological order. You enter the Obama administration, deputy CTO of the United States. When you came into office, what would you define as like the central problem and challenge facing the country from a technological perspective? You're calling on me because I'm older, basically. Thanks a lot, Marshall. Um, I think, so this was 2012. Um, There were a lot of central issues at the time. The one that I chose to work on, I would define as service delivery, really. Today, you know, I feel like that's, that's expanded into this sense that we have a gap in implementation of policy. So it's bigger than service delivery. Or for me, maybe today it's even more into sort of proceduralization. But back then... Um, I was, uh, Todd Park, who was uh, Michael's predecessor, or I guess two before, um, called me and asked me if I would come to D.C., and I happened at the time to be literally in the building at the Government Digital Service in the U.K., um, which was a group that was just transforming how the British government was communicating with its citizens. They were taking down literally thousands of sort of lousy websites and replacing it with one that worked and was simple and clear and beautiful. They were doing a lot of interesting back-end stuff too. But, you know, for me, having, I'd I'd been running Code for America for probably two years then, um, so I knew what public sector technology offices looked like. When I stepped into that room uh, with the GDS, I was just, it was like, I was in Disneyland. I mean, there were people, they had this thing called the Wall of Done, and every time somebody got some old website sort of, you know, put up, you know, redone on the new website, they'd go up and take the sticker and put it on the Wall of Done, and it just was vibrant, and their work was clear and beautiful, and it was just not all this clutter that we end up with in in government. And uh, so, you know, uh, I mean, not, it was also related, of course, to what I'd been doing at Code for America, but Todd said, please, we want you to come to D.C. and run the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, which is a fantastic program, but it's really quite broad. I mean, you could work on, you know, we had two guys, I think, working at NIST at the time. But what I wanted to work on was government's ability to deliver services to the American public. And uh, that's, that's what we did. 
Michael, same question for you. Um, you, know, you come in 2019, I believe. Um, what would you define as a central challenge in the CTO position? Yeah, I think the, the history of the position, I think, is, is, is a good way to kind of frame it. I think when, when President Obama kind of decided to create this new role and, and house it at, at the White House, I'd argue kind of the, the biggest challenge, at least in the, in the tech sense that the federal government faced, was very much kind of the stuff that Jen was talking about, where you had a lot of these agencies that were built on these very, very archaic technology stacks, and there was this desire and, and recognition that like something had to be done to sort of like modernize these, like move agencies into the cloud, like have websites that actually work, like allow people to do services online and not have to call someone. And those were kind of sort of like table stakes that had to sort of be accomplished. And I would kind of, and that's how kind of I view sort of chapter one of the US CTO office of how do you kind of enable these agencies to do these things and lots of programs sprouted up around that to, to enable them, things like PIF, things like the United States Digital Service, and so on. Um, when I started at the White House in, in January of, of 2017, we're kind of in this moment where, you know, we, you know, eight years had, had been sort of spent on, on what I would call federal technology policy, or how the federal government conducts sort of like tech work. Um, and there was a, a long, long history of, I guess, eight years worth of history of how to get that accomplished. For us, we took a little bit of a different perspective where we focused the office on what I would consider or define as national technology policy. So that is sort of what policy does the U.S. government um, have in order to ensure American leadership in key technologies that matter for the country. So at that point, it was, you know, we started talking about artificial intelligence, that the U.S. wants to lead the world in AI and ensure that this sort of CCP doesn't sort of catch up. What do we need to do? Um, so we spent a lot of effort, at least my four years in, in, in the office, um, trying to develop and execute national strategies to drive U.S. leadership in key emerging technologies. So to me, I think the CTO role can kind of take a little bit of variation. It can either be more federal tech-based or national tech-based. And I think that's, that's kind of how I tend to think about it. I'm glad that you just set that up as, you know, there are two different like, kind of visions or iterations of this position. Um, now that we're in the year 2023, how would you like assess the position as a whole, like where it fits both like in the governmental discourse, but in approaching the two challenges that you identified? And Jen, you could go first. Um, I will say that I was actually kind of the oddball. I mean, most of the office when I was there was focused on what you would call, tech, I mean, it was tech policy. I, I love what you guys did with it, and I think it needed to go there. But, you know, we had uh, three other deputy CTOs at the time. Nicole Wong was working on data, you know, the big data project. Um, uh, Tom Power was working on telco stuff, and then you had uh, Nick Sinai working on um, entrepreneurship stuff. So um, the, the truth be told, service delivery does not belong in the Office of Science and Technology Policy. This was just a hack, as many things are in government. And uh, when we built USDS, we didn't build it in, in OSDP. We built it at OMB. It's sort of where it needed to be. Actually, I ended up building it, the Office of Management and Budget, as well as a sister unit within the uh, General Services Administration, which is really designed to do well, it's designed to do general services for other federal agencies. So um, that work really, I think, is, is correctly not continued, really, under, uh, under the CTO's office um, in, when, in, during Michael's tenure. But, you know, we don't have a federal CTO right now. So 
uh, it's really hard to say where that that you know where the focus is going. Um, but we have still been able to, for instance, ship uh, and I mean I say we they have um, put out a pretty good executive order on AI, for instance, and OMB is doing the guidance on that. So this is sort of a good question, I think, um, and I absolutely agree with what Michael said. That role is extremely fungible. It can be kind of what you want it to be, and it is definitely shaped by the person in it, and it can should be shaped, I think, by the national priorities. Um, if we had a CTO right now, I think the correct role for that person would be really what Michael had described. Yeah, and I think one, um, uh, there, there's other roles that have been created by statute, which tend to cover a lot of the sort of service delivery type um, sort of uh, uh, efforts you could be working on. So there's a federal CIO that sits in the Office of Management and Budget at the White House, and they are sort of statutorily required to coordinate IT policy across the federal government. So if you're a CIO at the sort of Department of Labor and you're trying to you know, work on something that may involve some other agency, the federal CIO can sort of serve as this, as this glue that can help drive it together. But and we have a great federal CIO right now. Claire Martirana is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think there, these roles exist, but I think the, the one thing that I do agree with is the, the, the White House as a building tends to move in the direction of presidential priorities. And if something is a top priority for, for the president, it doesn't matter what office you work in, like you'll find a way to, to, to help contribute. And I think sort of some of the, uh, the ways to improve or make healthcare.gov work, for example, was sort of a, I'm sure you know much better than I do, sort of an all hands on deck effort where Todd Park, the CIO himself, kind of got, CTO himself sort of got, got very involved in, in, in helping, helping fix that. Um, somewhere I want to take this, given your answer, Jen, you, you started by discussing, you know, being with the Brits and there's this wall and you're just solving this thing and solving that thing. But then in your answers, um, I think properly, you got pretty wonky pretty quickly. Like there's the CTO, there's the CIO, there's this <laughs> branch, there's this branch, there's that branch. How much, and this is to the two of you, we could expand it out. How much of the job, if we're trying to like get technologists involved in government in the first place, is about like, okay, like we're here to like fix things, we're here to like move, versus like, okay, there's this broader bureaucratic system that we fit into, and actually understanding these agencies is key to understanding it. Like, so what's the line between slapping problems on a wall? and just actually understanding how government actually operates. Yeah, um, you have to do both. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, I think, that our government is, you know, I've been using Steve Tellis's word, a kludocracy, which means sort of cobbled together in certain ways. And um, authority is very diffuse. So you go in to solve a particular problem and you're going to have to run an interagency process because you're gonna to have to go work with a variety of agencies because they may have authority over one part or another. I mean, if you're trying to solve more of a horizontal problem, like the lack of capacity for digital service delivery, as Michael described, there's a bunch of people who are already there supposed to be doing that. And so um, it's, there's a lot of navigating of these things. I will say though, I think today um, there is a little bit more of a recognition that we need to just um, solve the problems, get people in and let them, you know, let them go at the problem without bogging it down too much with the, you know, 
touch base here, touch base there, touch base there. But it is certainly a skill that folks doing technology in government will have to learn if you don't already know it. I hear from a lot of folks, though. You know, I had this book come out in June, and um, I've done nine million talks since then. And people come up to me afterward, and they, you know, it's all these stories of sort of bureaucratic nightmares, really. This is some good stories, too. And people come up to me and they say, my company is exactly this way. And I don't think it's a skill that's unique to government. Um, I do think there are things that are special about government that make that bureaucracy harder to manage and harder to handle. And I think the stakes are higher, right? Like, we need government to work. A company can fail if it gets too bureaucratic. It, it, competition is going to take care of that. So we really do need government to work, but I don't think this skill of navigating bureaucracy is something that most people coming in have never even tried. That's fair. I think my, my one sort of, when I think back about where our biggest successes were, they were typically in areas where you had um, extremely sharp, bright technologists that were paired with sort of uh, wonkier people who were interested in the sort of, you know, um, authorities or policy hacking piece of it. Yeah. So if you can find that unique pair and stick those people together and have them run at a problem, that's typically where you find a solution. Because what, what I find most, what, and sometimes these presidential innovation fellows sometimes run into these problems where they have these great ideas, but do they have sort of the, the political top cover, someone who's able to sort of like bust a bureaucracy for them to actually allow these ideas to come through fruition. So I think a lot about how these, you know, if you want to make these things succeed, you got to think of them as, as a pair and, and one alone is never enough. Yeah, we call that bureaucracy hacking and they actually use that as a title at USDS. You can, that can be your title, bureaucracy hacker. And I will, um, having just mentioned my own book, if you do go into government and you haven't been working government before, please buy my colleague Marina's book and, and Nick, who I just mentioned, called Hack Your Bureaucracy, because it's full of all of those tricks um, that, that these folks use, um, and it's incredibly valuable. You'll get up to speed quickly. You know, something I'm curious about, um, Michael, especially for your comment about White House priorities driving these sort of positions. If I think to the Obama administration establishment of this position, it's very just early 2010s um, in the sense that um, there's no tech lash. We're excited about Google. The line for the case for government service kind of writes itself. Like, let's take all the innovation that we see in SF and bring it to DC. It's very optimistic. Obviously, like during and like before the Trump administration, the narrative really starts to change around like tech and government. You wouldn't make the same like, let's get all our Google programs into government case today. So from the two of you, I'll start with you first, Michael. What would your 2023, 2024 case um, for a technologist getting into government be, not just from like a mission-oriented perspective, but from like, why would you want to do this? Like, what is the value add that technologists are bringing to the space? Yeah, I mean, to me, I, it's, maybe this is too, too simple, but America must win. I mean, we're in a position now globally where our adversaries are, uh, you know, pressing ahead at a, at a speed and with a conviction that we've never seen before. And it's very clear to me as I sit in Silicon Valley having stepped away for almost three years now that the CCP has not stopped and it will not stop to try to dominate the world with, with, with technology. And in these, in these core emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, 
like quantum information science, like biotech, as we see, these are very, very dangerous technologies to put in the hands of, of bad actors. And the CCP has made it very clear that they will use these, these technologies for their authoritarian sort of objectives. And then they not only want to do that, but then they want to export those technologies to people who are on the fence between either being with us in the United States and the, and the sort of Western developed world or following the more authoritarian route. So I think it's, it's you know, for our own sort of future as a country and, and the future of our allies, we must win in these technological races. And it's absolutely critical that we have the smartest and best minds out there in the world working on that problem. And we need them in government to do that. I mean, I, I would agree with that. And I had the privilege of being exposed to some of the challenges that we have in our military through the Defense Innovation Board, and so that became very dear to my heart as well. But I would say we must win not only on the national stage, we have to win domestically too. And um, we have this enormous gap between the intention of the policies and laws that we pass and the actual outcomes that they're supposed to get. And that is eroding trust and faith in democracy in really terrifying ways. Um, the the mission sells itself these days, I think, you know, especially after COVID. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people who are like, can, you, can I please go work at the CDC? It's quite obvious that they need the help. It's quite obvious that if we have another pandemic, for instance, that the CDC is going to have to do better. And I think people are getting, it doesn't just get better like magically. It gets better because people like you go there and make it better. And so I think, it's, I think the mission is really selling itself. I think what people also feel in their bones is that when we say X, like we're getting pandemic unemployment insurance out the door, you know, and then millions of people don't get that benefit and we have this gap, that we are driving people away from democracy. It makes people lose faith that democracy can work. And while I talk about bureaucratic problems and service delivery problems, this all feeds directly into problems of democracy and politics that, uh, in ways that I think, if you haven't thought about it before, I think most people say, yes, we can feel that happening in our communities, with our families, with people who have been told one thing, but what happens is this other thing. And they, it is an obvious there's a direct line from that experience to either political alienation um, or authoritarianism. I think they're just ba they're like basic things that citizens of the country sort of expect, and they should expect that the government is able to do. And I, I remember very vividly during the during the COVID era when we were attempting to put together the plan at. Uh, at SBA, at Small Business Administration, to deliver on all of the PPP loans. Um, and you can imagine, you know, you had to create some sort of intake system where any small business could claim that they were entitled to sort of PPP money. It somehow had to be vetted and then somehow had to be like sent out, like literally cash from the treasury through banking channels to your bank account. And like for millions of people and these problems are like you know the, the the policy may have been good or bad whatever our elected representatives decided it and the president signed it into law the question was how do you deliver that and it's actually 
it, it's, it, it's kind of a hard engineering problem that has like lots of private sector counterparties, it has multiple agencies involved, and even if you track now and you type sort of like PPP fraud, you'll get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Google hits. It's, so it's a, it's a very, very challenging, there are many challenging technical problems that, that citizens expect the government gets right. So we need more and more people to help solve those. You know, uh, I really appreciate the kind of like call to action from the two of you. I guess what I'd be curious about, especially because we're speaking about technologists, especially in the like mission critical areas you're describing, what exactly under our system, like let's say we need to win an AI um, and we need to have like smart technologists in government. Like I know that part of the answer from the American systems perspective is, okay, go join a startup or go be a researcher, like go actually build um, that AI future we need. What in government um, is someone doing if that's kind of like the kind of dichotomy we could establish there? Um, yeah, so when I think about national strategies on sort of delivering on sort of American leadership in a particular domain, you, you can put in, a, in a, probably like four general categories. But the first is sort of research and development leadership. So the question is, the government spends about $165 billion annually on federally funded research and development. And the question is, how is that money allocated into what types of programs? So you need very smart people to help understand where this money is going and develop sort of when we have, there's a national artificial intelligence research and development strategy. So that strategy has eight or nine goals, and then every agency that then decides to give out or give out um, grants for particular AI research generally conforms to that strategy. So you need smart people to not only sort of develop what those strategies are, what are the eight or nine key areas of artificial intelligence R&D that, that we must be focusing our dollars on, but then you need smart technologists at all of those agencies to figure out how to make sure that the programs that the federal government is funding are then aligned to those particular, particular, uh, particular priorities. I think another one we see, and is very near and dear to a lot of the work that FAI does, um, is this question around technology regulation. So if the US wants to lead the world in artificial intelligence, it has to create a regulatory sort of environment where startups can thrive, where large technology companies can continue doing their business in a way that still protects American citizens. And, and developing and actually implementing regulations and, and laws around this stuff is like, really complicated. And if, if you're just like a lawyer who likes to like think about tech, you know, that's probably not enough. Or and if you're just a technologist that's like an amazing machine learning engineer, that's probably not enough. So you have to like combine these two people together to get to figure out what the right path forward is for a regulatory architecture or structure that, that works. I think those are kind of two examples where technologists can come in and actually be quite impactful. Yeah, I was recently at Vint Cerf's 80th birthday. Um, and it's just so fun because you look around and like everybody there worked in government. It's the exact opposite of what people think. I mean, I, and this is sort of a cliche to remind folks that the internet came out of DARPA, but uh, it really hit home for me being around all these, 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 these folks who had literally created this and all remembering, like, which agency were you in at that time? Like, they all worked in government. Um, but I completely agree um, with Michael, and I'll just add to sort of the, the use of technology in government, or particularly in this AI moment, right? There's a lot to be said about whether you know, the government should be developing, developing its own AI models. I'm not sure how you'd feel about that, but I'd be, I'd be down for it, you know, if we could. But we certainly have 
an imperative right now to use AI tools in the delivery of services. It's going to happen everywhere but government. Let's have it also happen in government or we get, you know, further left behind. And you just, the, that is, our ability to do that is directly related to the amount of tech talent we will have in government to be able to be the voice for a reasonable outcome, right? There's going to be a lot of voices of caution, and I'm happy to have some caution, but somebody there needs to say, I'm a competent technologist, I, I have reviewed this, you know, we're doing this right, and the, the risks of using this are, are outweighed by the benefits of it. Maybe that won't always be true, but where it is true, we need to be able to say yes to that, um, or government gets further left behind, and that happens we had a saying at, at, at USDS, I think it's still around there on the walls, decisions are made by people who show up. You know, you can be a brilliant technologist going into government and actually not do that much technology, but if you're in the room at the right moment and you enable something, it can have enormous impact. You know, we uh, kind of did the name rank serial number bit when we went through your bios, but I just would love to hear, and I think it'd be useful for everyone here, for you to like specifically like articulate what experiences the two of you had at Teal Capital, at Code for America, and even before that, that prepared you to execute and even be selected for these positions in the first place. I think for me as, um, you know, if you, if you think about kind of what the era was in the 2010s of the types of companies that um, were succeeding and growing, um, they, you know, the trend that I noticed kind of over my sort of almost seven years in the, in the ecosystem was there became more and more companies that venture capitalists were investing in that were in highly regulated industries. So if you think of companies like SpaceX, um, very highly regulated. You can't just like launch a rocket because you feel like it. Um, if uh, it, in the world of even very successful companies like, like Stripe, you know, in, in an area like financial services, you, you can't just decide to be like sending money around without some sort of licensing and all sorts of other stuff. If you think about the world of like Uber and Lyft in that area, which were just getting funded and picking up, at almost every turn there was this like new direction that venture was taking towards trying to tackle heavily regulated industries as places of, of opportunity. And as we were kind of evaluating those investments, what, what became very clear um, to me and I guess the, the investment team was that there always was like a growing and growing amount of analysis being done on the regulatory risk associated with those, with those particular investments. And to me, I found that particularly fascinating and, and very interesting. And I think more important to me, it, it, made, it sort of saddened me in some sense, where we have these, these amazing technologies that are out there, but, but we don't have, a, we don't have a, a regulatory environment that can allow these technologies to succeed. And, and, uh, and when I had the opportunity to, to kind of go into government, my very first thing that I had on my list on the agenda was like, how do you remove barriers to innovation was kind of how I thought about it. Like, how can we go out there and like surgically look for things? Like the first program we ever did was, was to do a pilot program around drone, uh, commercial drone delivery. And it was something that we, we got through as the, the first tech executive order that President Trump ever signed was around that. And there was this realization that unless we sort of like pushed the envelope and got these regulators to move faster, these technological breakthroughs we could have will, will never happen. So for me, it was that that was kind of that was kind of my lens. Um, well, I founded this organization, Code for America, in 2010, really to kind of do this at the state and local level. And um, 
it was a steep learning curve for me, I think, in the, how difficult it is to get stuff done at local government, but also how just by having a team of technologists there who could actually just do something rather than go through all the hoops of a procurement, just, just sort of broke, out, uh, broke up everyone's assumptions and sort of um, really, I think, moved the Overton window for local government. Wait a minute, we can just do this if we've got people around? Um, I think, so, so I came in wanting to sort of do that play again at the federal level. Todd had already, Todd Park had already started the Presidential Innovation Fellows, so there'd been a year of them before I came in. He actually based it, I think he said, on, on Code for America and probably some other fellowship programs. Um, uh, and so he also, I think, had established what you can do. I'll give you an example of a guy who was in our second, the cohort that I was there for. Um, there was this wall of paper that were literally paper reports that were adverse effects of drugs. This was at the FDA. And this guy, Sean, amazing guy, like persisted for so, so long in getting this contract that sort of, they could uh, OCR, you know, put the paper through scanners, OCR them, and then sort of turn them from the OCR into structured data. And it took him six months to get the contract through. But once he did, he had the data. Like three hours later, he was playing with it and showing, like, oops, that's a bad batch of this. Like, the, it was going to sit on paper until Sean got there, right? And it's just suddenly everyone's like, wait, you're, you're doing this. That's, that's now data that's actually available to us. And we're seeing stuff that we needed to know about, frankly, and hadn't. So we already had these kind of moments of, like, just the, you know, the, the, whole understanding of what was possible changing when you had fellows in there. Um, I think the thing that we didn't talk about as much that happened at Code for America and prepared me for sort of helping start the USDS is an understanding that we need to fight not just to have technologists there to play with the data, but to be at the policy table. And that the idea that we're going to create policy over here and then all the way over there somebody's going to implement it and somehow that's going to work out well. Uh, that's wrong and there's a lot to do still to challenge that but we saw it in the first year at Code for America. We had folks sitting, you know, doing tech or doing implementation and sitting next to the policymakers, and they could just talk, you got great outcomes. You were able to actually see the limits and the edge cases in the policy, you know, as they started to implement and then adjust on the fly. And, you know, I think USDS and lots of other efforts within government to do better tech or better service delivery, really under the hood, what they are is ways to get policy and implementation in a tight feedback loop. I think a, a quick follow-up, Jen. Um, you've written a lot about it and obviously have experience at the state and local level. And earlier in the conversation, we're talking about like tech competition with China. You're referencing the CDC. Like the stakes are very obvious, and I could just see how obviously, um, no matter your thoughts on government, anyone in tech would be attracted to attacking those problems. It seems like at the state and local level, the problems and opportunity sets are just not going to be as compelling, though I obviously think you're going to think that's not quite true. What would you say would be like the state and local stakes when it comes to solving challenges and getting technologists involved in government? Well, the CDC problem is a state and local problem. 
So the reason we didn't have any data uh, when uh, COVID hit is because there's this incredible heterogeneity in terms of how local, uh, um, local public health offices collect and manage their data. And so I don't think any, almost any problem that you talk about actually has a state and local component. Um, but the truth is, I actually think it's in some ways, depending on sort of what drives you, right? If you want to work on national aid policy, you, gotta, you should go to the federal government. If you care about people getting their unemployment insurance or their food stamps, or actually right now, let's talk about the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. Like, we desperately need to move to a green economy. Um, we need to electrify our homes. There's huge incentives in the IRA for people to do that. Um, but that actually is a huge amount of IRA implementation that needs to speed up, happens at the local level. You have to, uh, first of all, the states are the ones responsible for those rebate programs if you're buying a heat pump. Like, we're telling 53 state energy offices, some of which have like five people in them, to design and implement a rebate program that like millions of people are supposed to use. Like run there as fast as you can. Run and join your state energy office so that we can actually, you know, people can get their solarization and their heat pumps. Um, you need to get that, that solar thing permitted, right? Like if, if, if IRA succeeds, we should have, you know, what, double 10x, like the number of people trying to get their solar installations permitted. I have not seen a local government yet that has handled a 10x surge in anything well. There's huge opportunities at the state and local level for anything that you can think of, whether it's, you know, social services, green energy, um, uh, housing, it's all there. So I think for the two of you, um, directly and indirectly, your work, um, as CTOs leads to your work in the national security space. Um, Michael, your comments kind of like hinted at this. Um, well, not hinted, you're very explicit um, about the national security implications here. Um, I'm just curious, um, sitting um, in Silicon Valley right now, like working at scale, serving on the Defense Innovation Board, I'm curious how you think um, technology um, and just the industry in general play a role in arresting the set of challenges we're describing here. Yeah, I think from a security standpoint, there's obviously been, uh, in the last few years, a bit of a renaissance in this interest in, in sort of driving technological development in, in sort of this sort of d defense tech world, if you will, and, you know, companies like Andrel are becoming more sort of household names, and Palantir obviously has a story and so on, but the reality is sort of the, the, the uptake of these types of next-gen sort of defense technologies at the Pentagon is still super, super, super low, and still super, super hard, and you know, even if you think of sort of the, the, you know, there's not that many major AI programs, for example, at the, at the DOD, but if you think about, you know, the people who are like running and organizing them, you know, we don't, we don't have, you know, a deep, deep bench of machine learning engineers who are helping drive our like most important programs. So you can see there's this like very big sort of structural, structural problem. Um, you know, that, that being said, I think, I, I think slowly the, the, the country has sort of uh, awakened to this and the innovation sort of community and the tech community has, and we're seeing a lot of great companies that are now involved in this space. 
Um, so I, I kind of remain optimistic, but I think there's a ton of work to be done. I think one thing that I cite all the time that I think you wrote was, uh, I think this, this paper about, I think it was called Dull Knife, is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm going to butcher sort of the thesis here, but it always resonates with me because, you know, it was this argument around the time when a lot of Google engineers were saying, oh, I don't want to work on this, you know, Project Maven thing, blah, blah. And, and the argument in the paper was that, like, you know, in what world do we want to equip, like, our warfighters, the people who are putting their lives on the line for all of us in this room <laughs> to go sort of defend everything that this country holds dear, we're going to hand them suboptimal technology when we have the ability as a country to give them the best technology that's known to man because we're America and this is Silicon Valley. And it's an incredible shame and a tragedy that we're in a position where, you know, we, we, we even contemplate or even contemplate the idea of not giving them the best, the best technology. So I feel there's a lot, we it's sort of incumbent on us to sort of equip those who go out and, and defend our, our freedoms around the world, the best technology out there. And, and hopefully, I think what I've seen over the last few years has been very, very encouraging in Silicon Valley, and hopefully we can do, we can do more of that. I think the mood has changed a lot since Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, people who used to give me a hard time about being on the Defense Innovation Board don't say that anymore. Um, the other part of that analogy is, you know, but, you know, remembering being in the kitchen as a kid and using a dull knife, and my mom saying, a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. Um, because you can't control it, right? You're just gonna slip. And um, yeah, it became, it became a big issue for me and, and uh, one that I still, I, I really care deeply about. Um, you know, Michael's better suited to talk about sort of the, the macro level. I mean, he did a bunch more over there than I did. Um, but let me like, you know, take it down. Like you're, you're on the ground in the DOD watching somebody try to get something done. And it's kind of terrifying. So I have a story in the, in the book about a friend of mine who was assigned to go help a project um, that the Air Force was, uh, Air Force was trying to get new software t for the satellites that run GPS. This is OCX project. And he goes there to help out. It's like already years late and, year, and bi literally billions of dollars over budget. And the thing that's wrong is that while the way to get the data from the satellites to the ground station is a very basic protocol called UDP. I'm sure you're all far more technical than I am, so you can explain to me later how I've said something wrong here. But he had UDP at one end and UDP at the other end. In the middle, somebody has put this gigantic uh, sort of Rube Goldberg machine of an enterprise service bus. And so the data is timing out. And it's just they're never going to get it to work. And he's like, why do you have this thing in here? And it turns out it's a requirement in the contract that the Air Force has um, issued to the contractor, Raytheon, and they say, well, it's here because it's in the uh, Air Force Enterprise Architecture. Why is it there? It's in the DOD Enterprise Architecture. Why is it there? It's in the Federal Enterprise Architecture. The truth is, it's not required in the Federal Enterprise Architecture. But because these things sort of descend through a hierarchy, right, at each time someone was translating from, well, actually from the Klinger-Cohen Act, um, which required, sort of required the federal enterprise architecture to be created. 
and then from there down to the DOD enterprise architecture and there to the Air Force enterprise architecture, there's no one technical in the room to say, no, that's not actually required. That was used as an example of interoperability. That's like the way we used to do it in the 90s. You know, and There's no one there. And they literally never got the ESB out of this thing, so they shipped the satellites back up with the old software. And I just, I, I, I mention that because it's like, I care very much about this, and until we create different conditions, I'm going to be quite worried about the state of our, our ability to defend ourselves, because I've seen how it just goes wrong in such really basic, minor ways. But again, let me say, if somebody who really understood technology had been in the room as it descended through the architecture, uh, descended through the hierarchy, and said, and spoken up, chances are we wouldn't have ended up like that. That's why we need people there. So we'll uh, close my questions with kind of a two-parter. Um, so part one will just be like, what are like the pathways for um, entry into government, state, local, federal, whichever one you want to pick? And then two, like what are, aside from the obvious AI one, problems or area of interest worth developing a knowledge set in or just a bit of focus on? Do you think that anyone in this crowd or anyone outside of this room would be interested in focusing on? We'll go with you first, Michael. Um, I think for pathways, it kind of depends on what you're interested in. If you're a technologist that wants to kind of roll up your sleeves and sort of work on actual tech that the government is trying to build or deploy for services, we talked about a little earlier, things like the United States Digital Service or the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program are two examples of, of those. Um, the Biden White House has actually done a good job of posting different pathways that Americans can take to help on the AI issue specifically. If you go to AI.gov, they're all, they're all listed there. Um, I think there's um, a, a, another uh, pathway that is sort of a, a fellowships pathway that a lot of folks use to go in and help with technology policy, either on the Hill or in, uh, in government themselves. And there's a number of sort of nonprofit institutions, things like Tech Congress, that are able to sort of sponsor these these fellowships, and you can go in essentially for a tour of duty for, for a year to sort of contribute your technical skills side by side with people who do more um, uh, more more tech stuff, uh, and then if you're if you're more political, if you will, um, there are uh, there are various uh, political roles that are uh, appoints appointments made by by the president to uh, to particular departments and agencies that cover uh, technology related or science related uh, topics, uh, and and those there's there's this uh, book that's a little bit hard to navigate, but if you if you Google Plum Book, it is a book that's uh, required by law to be published, I think, every two or four years, and it lists out every political appointment that the president um, is uh, is authorized by Congress to to make every time he he enters he enters office. And you can search through search through those. Um, I think the the one area uh, other than I guess other than artificial intelligence, a couple of other areas that I think are important. Quantum, it's a little more of a reach, but um, being able to think thinking about what. Um, using sort of quantum information science to sort of completely disrupt the way that uh, cryptography works today is is total game changer in our security community, and there's a lot of smart people thinking about that. Uh, and Congress just reauthorized the National Quantum Initiative, uh, or is it just about to, which is a is, is a big deal. Um, Another area which I think COVID has has exposed is uh, is the is the threat posed by sort of biosecurity, and and I think there's a lot of interesting uh, hard problems that the government and national security community need, needs to think about that as we have um, ever ever more um, scary scary adversaries. 
I think Michael got, I think, most of the pathways in. I'll add um, tech2gov, is it .org, I think, um, is a great place to go. They often do, like, virtual job fairs, um, and it's run by the Tech Talent Project and the Volcker Alliance. Um, if you're interested in state and local, there's a fantastic uh, newsletter that goes out every week run by a woman at U.S. Digital Response named Rebecca Haywood. And I think the way to find it is to search on Rebecca Haywood in LinkedIn and subscribe to it. But you, you, if, if that's wrong, I'll just send it out through here. Just, it's, but it's, a, it's really helpful. It's got, she really curates these opportunities across, really, you know, all, across, all the way across the country. Um, the one thing I would say is don't do it alone. <laughs> if you have not applied for a government job before, you need a co-pilot. Uh, it's not easy. I'm going to try not to be too negative here. Help me out. Uh, it's not a great process. Um, you are going to need someone to help you write a government resume. You're going to need somebody to coach you through some of the weirdo steps. You're probably not going to hear anything back. I know this happens in non, you know, in private sector jobs too. Um, but it's really helpful to have a community of people who can help you navigate this process. Um, so yeah, find, get help. I'm happy to hook you up with people to help. Maybe Michael yeah. is too. Um, in terms of areas, I mean, all those are amazing. I'll just put in another plug for IRA implementation. Um, uh, if you, there's the, that is probably, other than like if you invent the carbon capture technology that saves us all, the probably the biggest thing that you could do to help uh, avert a climate collapse is actually implement this incredibly powerful uh, law that has been passed that has a, without us, you know, not, not as great a chance of actually succeeding. I literally mean this, like it is at this point a matter of implementation whether we avert a climate crisis or not and that isn't going to happen without a bunch of people raising their hand and going into these places and helping out. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.